Hello, and thanks for joining in. I'm Jana Harmon, and you're listening to the Side B Podcast, where we see how someone flips the record of their life. Each podcast, we listen to someone who once did not believe in God, but who, against all odds, became a Christian. Today, we'll be talking with Julie Hanna. She was once a skeptical agnostic with a passionate interest in the human condition who spent many years exploring a very fundamental question. Do our lives have any meaning or are they just random events that end with death? She searched for answers in a wide range of sciences, philosophies, and faiths and was prepared to reach any reasonable conclusion from the evidence. No philosophy or faith system seemed ultimately convincing, at least at first. Her desire to ignore Christianity as implausible was challenged in her attempt to disprove it, but she ultimately became convinced by it. She has written about her journey towards Christianity in her book entitled A Skeptic's Investigation into Jesus, where she methodically looks at the facts regarding science, the biblical text, the historical person of Jesus, the issue of suffering, and many others. I hope you'll come and listen to her story today as she tells us how she moved from agnostic skepticism to ardent Christian. Welcome to the Side B Podcast, Julie. It's great to have you. Thanks so much, Jana, for the opportunity to share my, my thoughts uh, with, your, with your listeners. Thank you. Oh, we're so, we're so uh, glad to have you on today. As we're getting started, so the listeners know a little bit about you, can you, can you tell us a bit about yourself? Um, I live in South Africa, in Johannesburg, although I was born in Zambia, but I've lived here most of my adult life. And uh, I'm a mathematics lecturer. That's um, what I've done all of my life, really, is taught at high schools and then at university. So I have a passion for mathematics and the bush. I have a passion for the African bush. Um, and I'm a mother of two grown-up boys. And I'm recently retired, so I had time to put down my thoughts and actually get my thoughts published, which is part of what our discussion is about. Yeah, so tell me about uh, tell me about your book. What is the name of it and where can it be found? It's called A Skeptic's Investigation into Jesus because that's literally what it was. It was my exploration as an um, agnostic, almost atheist skeptic. And it is available on Amazon. It's published by Whips and Stock. That's good. And I will include that information also in the episode notes. Of, of the podcast for anybody who wants to look into that. So as we're getting started with your story, I love what you say about that you love the African bush. I had a brief uh, experience in the bush about three years ago. It was the most amazing place I think I have ever seen, to be honest. Um, really one of the highlights of my life. I, I presume that you have, when you say you you grew up in Zambia, and uh, you have a love for the African bush. What does that look like growing up in that area of the world? Um, it was really lovely because it was felt and what we call the Dambo. <laughs> I have no idea why we called it that, but just wild felt. We used to ride our bikes and make forts. We never saw wild animals there, luckily, apart from uh, baboon. But it was a very natural way. We never wore shoes unless we went to school. And it was a very free and um, it, it kind of open to exploration. That's what we loved. It was a very privileged upbringing. Well, that sounds pretty wonderful. Really idyllic for any child to have that sense of freedom and exploration. I can't imagine that this really sounds wonderful. What was the religious climate in that area? I know probably in South Africa, from my very, very limited experience, um, there are all kinds of thoughts about religion and God. Why don't you tell us about that? Um, 
Yeah, I had minimal religious influence in my upbringing. None of my family or friends were religious. We were nominally Anglican, so we went to Sunday school because that's just what good parents were supposed to do with their children. But my mother admitted she didn't believe in God. And, yeah, there was really... I can't speak for Zambia as a whole or even South Africa as a whole, but by the time I was a teenager, I rejected belief in God and the afterlife based, unfortunately, on really minimal exposure to Christian thinking. So the the nominal experience that you did have as a child, you weren't. did you have any even basic childlike belief in God? Did you ever pray or was it just going through the motions of an Anglican service or that sort of thing? Yeah, I don't, there was never really a sense that it was anything more than a societal thing that people did. And really, as, as I say, as a teenager, I decided that Christians probably didn't think much about their beliefs. But based based on really nothing more than a few Sunday school lessons and being bored in church, which also fell away by the time I was about 12. I think we stopped even going to those ceremonies. But it seemed to me from the outside, I'd have to say almost from the outside of, of Christianity, that it was, seemed to be a narrow and simplistic worldview. I mean, looking back, I, I seem to have judged what Christianity was in the same way that you would judge the culture of a country from some someone's holiday photographs. <laughs> yes. I knew almost nothing. I'd never read any scripture, never read anything myself. I just knew vague stories about floods and arcs and people walking on water, and none of it gelled with me because it had never been really presented to me as an adult. I only had a child's exposure, which I, I actually am starting to think is not an unusual case. Some of the atheistic people I've been speaking to since my conversion are very proud that they rejected Christianity when they were young, as if that's something to be proud of. But when I look back, it's something to be embarrassed about because I haven't explored it as an adult which is a huge weakness, of course. So it was really arrogant of me to be so confidently atheistic on the basis of such little knowledge. So as a teenager, you started in some ways to reject this childlike understanding, I suppose, of Christianity, uh, thinking that it was just merely a social construction, perhaps, maybe a social cultural activity. Um, Correct, so, and it's based on some rather strange myths <laughs> of yes. miraculous things. So it seemed to be an obvious thing to reject it, um, right? Which I did at the time. There was just no credibility, no real substance to it, and so obviously you were um, intellectual and interested in academics. So you were moving in. As a teenager, I, I presume, how old were you when you, you really took on that label of atheist? Was that something that you strongly identified with or it was just I that you knew you didn't believe in God? Um, I'd say by the time I was about 17, 18, and I was reading French existentialism, and I thought, now here is a brave and courageous thoughtful way of looking at a meaningless world. I think at about that stage, I thought, okay, that's it. Um, there's definitely, I'm not going the God route. This makes more sense. So let's just put that all aside. This, this uh, brave, courageous way of looking at the world through an existentialist worldview, it is, in a sense, a very brave way to look at life if you look at it through to its logical ends uh, in existentialism. Did you go that far in viewing your worldview that essentially you were brave if you were able to face the world starkly with regard to loss of meaning and 
um, those kinds of things? Well, that's an interesting question because that's ba- that's kind of where existentialism, existentialism was leading or did lead. So I, I also wondered, I thought that I had to critique that as well because although I wasn't religious, I was very interested in the human condition and in questions like what does it mean to be human as opposed to just a cat or a dog? Does our life have significance? Is there a correct worldview? Is there a particular way we should be living? So although existentialism suggested that you must make your own moral decisions and there's nothing transcendent to that, I wanted to critique that as well. I wanted to read more broadly about what possibilities there might be. So I actually started an investigation that would stretch over the next few decades And it was in two main directions. The one direction was into science, and in particular what the new physics had to say about the universe. And the other direction was an exploration into various belief systems. So how did that uh, play out? Did Did you start this active investigation as an 18-year-old or in university or just beyond? You said it took a few years actually to do this so how how, what did that look like it was probably in my mid-20s that it started becoming um, more of an well less of a I should do this and more of a I'm going to do this so then then I was sidetracked by having children so towards my late 20s it really started in, in, in earnest where I started a sort of 20 30 year investigation so you were in your mid-20s i i'm really impressed first of all i must say that that you were thoughtful enough about your own existence and your own worldview that you wanted to think about it more deeply because uh, oftentimes it's it's just too easy to avoid you know um but but you were obviously a, an introspective uh, again thoughtful person about your life and you wanted to understand it so did you you said you started in two directions, one through science and one into various worldviews. So can you talk with us perhaps about one of those? You, did you go down the scientific road first or did you go towards more of the humanities and religions? Uh, they were almost in parallel. Um, and I thought I'd share a few results from science first that strongly influenced my thinking. Yes, yes. Okay. Um, the first result is from cosmology. Um, as... As Brian Greene admits, the, the physicist, there's still a continuing ignorance of the fundamental origin of the universe. That interested me, that science has not been able to account for the arising of the universe. We simply don't know how it came about. And this issue of the physical constraints that have, there were physical constants that have to be constrained within extremely narrow margins for carbon-based life to develop. It's the very well-known fine-tuning argument. The fact is that our universe is phenomenally improbable. That is something that is inarguable. The only way to account for the statistical improbability is to suggest that perhaps there's an infinite number of universes so that this particular one at least becomes possible to arise. But there are major flaws and problems with this hypothesis. And there are quite a few scientists who speak very strongly against the suggestion that there must be an infinite number of universes. Uh, So that that was important to me. Um, I don't think I'll go into the the critiques of that theory at the moment because of time. But I guess as you you were coming to a conclusion, it sounds like that there had to be some kind of transcendent source outside of the universe in order for the universe to have been caused in the beginning. And that the, 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 we live in a kind of a Goldilocks universe that requires some kind of powerful or or infinite um, kind of source in order for this fine tuning to be as it is. So were you coming to those conclusions that perhaps there had to be this kind of transcendent source uh, beyond the universe in order for these things to be a reality as we see them? Or Yes, I, I was agreeing with people like um, 
the scientist Paul Davies, who says the impression of design is overwhelming. I mean, he's not a, a theist, but full stop, the impression of design is overwhelming. There's no getting around it. And like cosmologist Alan Sandage, who became a Christian, because largely because of this evidence of design. So although I didn't immediately join them, as it were, it did open my eyes to the strong possibility that, that there might well be a transcendent designer. That, that was a very interesting finding for me. Yes. So then from, from that perspective, I guess, then it would be more interesting or or... I can see where you would be driven towards, okay, if there is a designer uh, for this design, an originator for the origin of the universe, that perhaps then maybe religion or there may be a God or, or who is causing this. So I, I would imagine then your, your approach towards the human condition and re- how religions answers that qu- answer those questions would be a little bit more diligent with the understanding that perhaps there really is a God or gods at that point who could exist. Yeah, absolutely. I, it opened my eyes to the possibility that it was worth exploring in a way. If I'd gone into physics and they'd said, well, we know how it all happened. It's ABC. There's no need to go beyond our naturalist interpretations and our physical laws of phenomenon. If, if I'd encountered that, that would probably have been the end of the story for me. So this was a big thing saying it's worth it's worth delving deeper. Plus the, the fact that we don't even know what matter is, I found that intriguing. That physical mm. the things that look like ordinary physical objects are really just probability waves, um, waves of potentiality rather than objects, and that we're probably our four-dimensional space-time is undoubtedly embedded in a higher-dimensional reality. That was very important for me because how could we know how a higher-dimensional being could interact with our limited um, space-time continuing? And I, I found that very challenging. So it wasn't simple enough to say we can have a naturalist, determinist, materialist view of the world, scientists were saying, no, you can't. Our reality is far more complex than it might seem to us. That there had to be a a hypothesis, as it were, that there had to be something outside the natural world in order for uh, what what we know and experience within the natural world. Um, There had to be a transcending... Yeah, yes. uh, uh, the higher dimensional idea points to something transcendent and the fact that nature itself behaves in such counterintuitive ways and that it's not good enough simply to say, well, there's, for example, there's stuff and there's human consciousness even, which seems to be quite an easy way to see the world. There's a chair, there's a table, there's me, and then there's my consciousness as something separate. The new physics is is countering that. The new physics says no, that uh, the unfolding of reality is impacted upon directly by human consciousness. That's in, es- that's in essence what quantum mechanics is saying. So again, I thought, well, if we don't really understand the, the nature of material substance itself and how our consciousness might be um, impacting on it and affecting it, then, and there are higher dimensions, what about a higher dimensional consciousness then? How might that be impacting on our reality? So there were so many ways in which science was saying you've got to think beyond what you think you understand. So your eyes were really being open to possibilities and you were pursuing this information and knowledge, I guess, in a, in a sense, it sounds like, with some degree of openness and willingness to go wherever the evidence led. We're going to quickly pause our story for a moment so that I can tell you a little bit about the C.S. Lewis Institute. 
For over 40 years, the Institute has been committed to developing wholehearted disciples of Jesus Christ who will articulate, share, defend, and live their faith in personal and public life. Please consider making a donation to the C.S. Lewis Institute. To donate, go to our website at www.cslewisinstitute.org and click Donate. Thank you. Now let's get back to our story. Tell me, tell me more about, so science was kind of opening the door for you to possibilities. Tell me about your exploration into worldviews then and religions. Right. So, the human condition. I, yeah. Thanks. So at this stage, um, I, I was really only feeling that we should be at least humble enough to accept the possibility of some guiding form of transcendent intelligence in the universe. That's, what, that's the point with, to which science took me. Um, and then, but I was still thinking this transcendent principle could be completely impersonal. So in my explorations, I was looking at the natural order of Tao and Taoism, or the absolute reality of Brahman, or some form of cosmic energy in Kashmir Shaivism, where energy becomes manifest, which is very close to what physics is saying. That matter is a form of energy. And I was reading also about Jewish Kabbalah and the Hindu scriptures, the Hare Krishna movement, various forms of Buddhism. Um, but none of those, although they sort of hinted at truths and they were quite exciting, especially where they did fit in with the new physics, um, nothing, nothing made me feel, oh, this is the path. Or here is an explanation about the human condition and, and our purpose and the nature of the universe and so on. They were all just very interesting rather than anything I felt I could commit to. Um, but then something very interesting happened, which really took me in a completely unexpected direction. And that is that I kept encountering references to the cosmic Christ in, in non-Christian places, like the Guru Paramahansa Yogananda, for example. And that's when I thought, oh, here comes this Christ story again. Yes. <laughs> and yes, I thought, oh, I thought I'd got rid of this. I mean, in my head, anything to do with a miracle working God-man must be nonsense. I did not want to get involved with Christianity. But as you say, it's always been important for me to base opinion on evidence. So I felt if I was to be objective, I'd have to investigate Christian scripture, even if it was just so that I could explain why I rejected it. Because when I thought yes. to myself, why am I against this Christ idea? Why am I against anything to do with Christianity? What is my basis? What is my evidence? I realized I actually had no basis because I only encountered it as a child. So, right. Yeah, so I, I decided, okay, here is my aim. I'm going to discredit Christianity. I know I'm not the only person who set out like this. Uh, Lee Strobel, the journalist, did the same thing. Not so. But I decided, right. okay, I'm going to work out what is wrong with the Christian message, in what way is it flawed, in what way has it proven to be inadequate. And so I bought a whole set of New Testament CDs, and I listened to them while I drove to work. And I thought, okay, now I'm going to be able to put this in a box, understand why I judge it to be nonsense, and then move on with these other esoteric ex, um, exploration so that was my own and uh, so what did you yes what did you find as you started into this investigation of well, christianity yeah and needless to say I, it was a total surprise it was a total surprise um mm. so i expected that i would hear some simplistic moral teachings and some bizarre miracle stories and instead i was struck by this consistent voice of authority and authenticity in the Gospels. This consistent voice that I just could not ignore. Um, I was interested much later 
to learn that although Albert Einstein rejected the Judeo-Christian God, absolutely, he did say this in an interview, and I'd love to quote him here if I may. I'm sure a lot of you yes. heard this. But when I read it, it gelled with me. I thought, oh, yes, this is the way I felt when I first read the gospel. Einstein uh, said this in his interview. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. Quite powerful words. Yes. Yeah, and that is how I felt. As I read it, I thought, but this is not a Robin Hood exaggerated legend kind of figure I'm encountering here. This is a consistent voice of authority. I, I just couldn't believe that a range of writers could have fabricated Jesus' teachings and his distinct personality with the consistency that I was encountering. And that's when I thought, uh-oh, <laughs> I think I'd better investigate this a bit deeper before okay. I just toss it aside, you know, uh, as a superficial response. So I started a specific and deliberate investigation into Christianity and its roots in Judaism. So what did that deliberate investigation look like? Um, well, first I read and reread the New Testament because I wanted to see how all the pieces of these different stories fit together to try right. to make a whole uh, out of all these puzzle pieces. So I, I read it and reread it and Paul's letters and, and John's revelation and so on you know, to get a sense of what the central message was. And then I read the Old Testament. Uh, then I researched rabbinic texts about the messianic prophecies in the Old Testament. Um, I read theological commentaries. My favorite was Karl Barth. <laughs> I read scholarly papers on the resurrection and the early church and the transmission of scripture in those times, oral and written, especially in the early Jewish communities. Um, and I read atheist critiques of all of these aspects. I was trying to still keep an open mind. I mean, I was, I was probably even keen at that stage to find out that Jesus' followers had exaggerated his nature and his work. I was, I, was, I was still happy to find that this was a load of nonsense. So I was reading highly critical scholars like Bart Ehrman and Burton Mack and the, the, uh, the Jesus... What group? They're the Jesus scholars. Um, uh, the Jesus slips my mind. Never mind. But although I was happy to find many contradictions and flaws and arguments against the veracity and the authenticity of the Gospels, I, I, I discovered something completely different. I discovered that there are links and consistency between the Old and New Testament that are truly astounding. And I mean, Jesus' work not only fulfilled Old Testament prophecy, they also provide, together with his promised return, they, they provide a, a physical enactment of the seven feasts of Judaism. There's a whole structural parallel. The, the datings, the symbolism, they're remarkable. If, if Jesus never did or said the bulk of what you read about in the New Testament, then those writers would have had to invent a whole, a whole amazing realm of detail about his acts, his claims, his teachings, death, resurrection, to tie in very closely with numerous ancient images and prophecies and festivals and dates and rituals. It's just impossible for that all to have been invented. So it was the consistency and the parallels and the, uh, the tie in with a whole lot of Old Testament traditions and prophecies that made me decide nobody could have just come up and invented all of the stuff that we find about Jesus in the New Testament. Yes, it is quite amazing when you sit back and look at the whole of the narrative from Old Testament to New Testament, considering it was written over a process of 1400 years over you know, around 40 authors, several continents. And, and then you look at the cohesiveness of the narrative 
And it, that alone is just incredibly astounding, uh, much less what you what you talk about in terms of just the integration of the story, the prophecies, the fulfillments, um, the symbolism, and, and how it all points to the person of Christ and, and his, his being really the center of all history. And it really is overwhelming when you start to step back and look how all the, as you said before, how all the puzzle pieces start to be placed together into some kind of coherent whole. And I, and I wonder, since you had a concern about the human condition and really looking into that, of course, there were these, you were coming to an intellectual understanding and of how all of these things came together and the, the ring of truth and the person of Christ. I also wonder how it answered those questions for you about the human condition, who we are, how we determine right and wrong, where does our sense of consciousness or even dignity and value or purpose play as you were reading and putting together these pieces with regard to Christianity and the person of Christ? Um, in terms of the, uh, the meaning, the human meaning. Yes, who we are is in our humanness and in our brokenness, our beauty and our brokenness and how that relates to scripture and the, the, those, those very deep questions you were searching for with regard to the human condition. Yeah, I, I think, strangely enough, it was a deep question and Christ has provided a deep answer. And for me, I can only give what might seem almost shallow in its simplicity, but it just brought me peace. Uh, just from the Old Testament through to Revelation, from the promises, from the broken promises in the Garden of Eden, and then the promises of God throughout the Old, Old Testament that I will provide a new creation, I will provide atonement, I will wipe away all tears, and then Christ's Christ coming and saying, I'm here to complete the Father's work. My meat is to do the work of the Father. Until he said, on the cross, it is done. Tetelestai, it is finished. Through to John's revelation where there is a new heaven and earth and there is restoration with Christ and all tears are wiped away and we have access to the tree of life. That huge <laughs> beginning to end, vast cosmic picture just gave me one very simplistic response. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's as if yeah. asking quite profound questions as, as, a, as a young adult I and mean, then as an older adult. And my, my response to, to Christ's work isn't even at that level of complexity. It's just an, oh, my word. It's all under control. It's all planned. God has it all from beginning to end, um, even through our suffering and our problems. All, we just have to rest. I, I have brought you rest was the final sense of how I responded to my investigation. That's amazing. It seems to me that this cosmic Christ, who is the one, like you say, overall in control of all, in this extraordinary cosmic way, is also incredibly very personal. It sounds like the what he brings, not only over all cosmos, he also brings into your life this sense of movement from chaos to shalom you you keep speaking of rest and peace and that was your response and that's really a beautiful kind of response uh, because you can see how the pieces are placed together and there there must be some kind of rest in that to have these grand questions answered in a way that you were intently seeking very much so. I mean, I'd, in terms of that rest thing, I, I just remembered something that happened to me, which I'd like to share. You know, yes, yes, I, certainly. 
I, it was, I was um, busy with studying Sufism at the time, and it's the, an esoteric aspect within Islam. And it's a truly beautiful uh, spiritual path in terms of uh, trying to perfect yourself and to work on your, your forgiveness and your, your grace. And I was working very hard at that. Unfortunately, I was failing <laughs> terribly because I, I, I do have a bit of a temper. I tend to, I have a group, I did tend to judge other people. And I was wrestling with myself. I was trying to force myself into, through meditation and so on, I was trying to force myself into a state of loving patience, which is very important in Sufism. And I was aspiring to this goal. I was focusing. I was meditating. And then one day my neighbor's kids drove me nuts, <laughs> really nuts, because they had regular long screaming matches. So I stormed outside and I had a confrontation with the, with the, uh, the, the caretaker. And I came back in my house and I really, I threw up my hands and I said aloud, I give up. I'm done with all of this. I cannot do it. And then a quiet voice in my mind, but I promise it was not my thought. A quiet voice just said, of course you can't. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was, of course you can't. I was trying to perfect myself, make myself kind of some kind of superhuman, wonderfully blissful, uh, kind, gracious, calm person. And I was trying to master my emotions. I was trying to force myself to be what I wasn't, which is quite an explosive personality. And this voice just said, of course you can't. I can't tell you what relief I felt. I, I felt as though I'd been trying to pull myself up by my bootstraps or as if I was traveling in a train and I'd been carrying a huge burden. And someone just said, why don't you put that down? <laughs> the, train, yes. the train will take you. I laughed. I cannot tell you the sense of relief I felt. There was such as a pressure and a burden that just left me. I felt light. I felt liberated. I felt set free. And I, for some reason, I thought, I don't have to do it. I don't have to do it. There's nothing I have to do. I can just rest and it's going to be okay. Now, at that stage, I was still into many, many other, uh, I hadn't even started exploring Christianity. So I, I didn't even know what this piece was about <laughs> or where it was going to lead me or where it had come from or what it meant. But I'll never forget that sense of, it's not my fight. I don't have to wrestle. I can rest. And I, I cannot help feeling that in those early days, the Holy Spirit was somehow trying to tell me, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, it was a very yeah, you know, experience for me. Yes, I would imagine. So there really is something so relieving when you come to the realization that it really isn't all about you. You know, what you can do is what about Christ has already done for you on the cross. I imagine when you were reading through the New Testament, then after that, I when you came to Jesus's words, where he says, those of you who are heavily laden or burdened, come to me and I will give you rest. That must have resonated when you ran across that passage. Absolutely did. I thought, this is what I've sensed a long time ago without even realizing what the source was. I'd like to take a break from our story for a moment to tell you about a special upcoming evening with the C.S. Lewis Institute where singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson will be addressing questions like, how does our own creativity reflect our Creator? Does art glorify God? And what is the role of imagination in the arts in the life of a Christian? There will also be a Q&A session with the live listening audience. This wonderful online event will be held on Friday evening, June 18th. There is no charge, but you do need to register. 
For more information and to register, please go to www.csosinstitute.org forward slash art. Now back to our story. So all of the pieces then came together and, and you, you came to a place, obviously, of belief that, that it, it made sense not only of the cosmos, but of the world and made sense of your world in a sense. It did absolutely. When I realized that, I mean, if people had created or invented, fabricated, all of these details that I'm speaking about that, that sit in, it would have been a spectacularly, impossibly well-structured exaggeration. I mean, you, you can't say to people, make up uh, uh, some stories around Robin Hood, for example, Robin of Lotsen. Go away and make up some stories and talk about it amongst yourself. It would be impossible for that to happen in such a coherent way, for, for such a voice to come through, and then as you as you say, for it to all fit in with the Old Testament. Um, or, or it would have been a sophisticated and uniquely brilliant fraud. But why would people do that? Why would they go back into... Because people often say, well, it's easy for the, new, for the guys who wrote the New Testament to copy stuff from the Old Testament and to make it look as though there's a connection. But why would they even do that? <laughs> there's no motivation to make up a whole lot of details and, of course, they couldn't have created all of the details around his, uh, Jesus dying in Passover and rising on the day of First Fruits Festival and so on. But there would be no reason for them to do it. There wasn't even an expectation that the Messiah would die and rise. So why would they create that strange thing? So, yeah, it was the way everything fitted in together. And then, as you say, the sense that, okay, although... Although we might rail against it, this idea of the original fall and rebellion and God's sort of long-term plan does make sense in terms of our world experience. Why are we suffering like this? What does it mean? Is, does it mean that life is completely meaningless? Should we just give up and look to our own humanist selves for our morals and our ethos and our ethics? It did, as you say, answer the questions about how do we live life? What is the purpose of life? Nothing, no other belief system had answered those questions with such clarity and, and intellectual um, uh, satisfaction. So, you know, I, I constantly hear this sense that there is a, a presumption about who Jesus is, what the Bible is, what Christianity is, who Christians are. And somehow when someone actually gets close enough, perhaps not to some Christians, I guess, but um, they, they see something so totally other than what they expected. And you used the word surprised earlier. It was a total surprise. I would imagine that in, in, a, in a way, you're still somewhat surprised as someone who was seeking to disprove Christianity now finds yourself now a strong advocate for it. Well, what I felt once I got to this point was I would like to have known this stuff when I was asking questions decades ago. Instead of sort of, I would have liked people to be I would have liked to have found a book that said, but look at these connections, the stuff you can't make up, and uh, look at the the coherence of the whole picture from Genesis through to Revelation. Who would have made all of that up? So, and look at science. Has science answered all the big questions, or are they also still seeking? These were things that weren't easily accessible to me in my search. So then I thought, well, I'd like people to know this because <laughs> I think it's useful stuff. Whatever they decide, I would like people to have this interesting information to work from. Mm. So that's what drove you to write so that others could have what you didn't. Yes, that, that's really wonderful. So 
considering you as a former skeptic, if you were to speak to those who are currently skeptics or perhaps listening, even uh, interested in looking into Christianity, what would you advise them in terms of a, a search? Well, firstly, I'd like to encourage an open-minded approach because reality is so much more complex and mysterious than it appears to us. And there are some very good science books written about this that are accessible. Paul Davies particularly writes very accessible science that opens one's mind. And I would also encourage people who are either seeking or, or, or not believing to be very skeptical when they hear confident assertions that natural processes have explained everything about how the universe arose and how intelligent life developed on Earth, because that's simply not true. There, there are highly respected scientists that are saying exactly the opposite. And many are concluding that an intelligent creator makes more logical sense from scientific evidence than simply random development. So it's easy to, you often hear people out there say, oh yeah, but we've, they've created life in a laboratory. They, they know that uh, how the universe arose from quantum fluctuations and so on. Those are simplistic statements that are not supported by the science. And uh, Marcus Eberlin, he's a, um, an award-winning chemist, he published in uh, just 2019. He summarized a whole lot of uh, scientific findings regarding the development of life on Earth. And he, his book is endorsed by Nobel Prize winners. And this is the title of his book because it says everything. His, his book is called Foresight, How the Chemistry of Life Reveals Planning and Purpose. That's a, that's a Nobel winning, well, he didn't win Nobel Prize, but the guys who endorsed his book did and he says there is definite evidence of foresight so don't be cut off or overwhelmed or um, convinced by superficial statements out there that science has explained it all because that's just not true so julie for those christians who are listening who want to engage more thoughtfully not only with their own worldview uh, but also engaging, um, helping others to see that perhaps Christianity isn't as simplistic as they think it is, um, how would you encourage Christians to engage with those who are skeptical? Yeah, I think it's really important for, for Christians to be well-informed because there's so much vociferous and intense attack almost on Christian belief, that, that it has to be anti-rationalist, that um, it's in conflict with science, that it is simplistic and narrow and stupid. There's so much of that out there, and increasingly so with the, with the proponents of new atheism, that I think Christians could only benefit from knowing what science says, which is not in conflict with scripture, to my way of thinking anyway. I'm not talking about necessarily the six-day argument that becomes quite complicated in itself, but just the overall sense of a creator God who's in control, who sent his son, the work that Jesus has done. There's nothing here that conflicts with science. And there are so many scientists who have been, who have been brought to Christ through their scientific work, brought to faith, brought to belief in God. And I think Christians can only benefit from knowing this so that they don't have to be defensive or try to block discussion with people because they feel that they don't have a strong position. Um, and all these accusations about Jesus as composite myth, the early deification of Jesus, paganizing influences in the church, the corruption of scripture, a lot of the arguments that are out there they, they're, they are weak arguments, and they have been disproven again and again. So it's useful to, to know that and to hear the argument that refutes these skeptical atheist challenges. 
Uh, so if people are interested in strengthening their faith, then, well, that's what the book's for. <laughs> yes, yes. I think there's something to be said for just not ignoring the difficult questions and the difficult issues, but actually when you dig in and dive in, you actually see the profundity of the Christian worldview and how it makes sense of reality. It makes it makes sense of science. It makes sense of what we see and experience and know in our world and in ourselves. And it only serves to strengthen your faith and your witness for Christianity. I think that that's a good word. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Julie, before we wrap up? Any other thoughts? Um, I think just thank you for inviting me to share. And I do hope that others out there who, who haven't come to faith might consider at least exploring the possibility and that others stand strong in their faith because we're going to need to. Yes, yes. You have an extraordinary story, Julie. I, again, am so impressed with the intentionality and the diligence, the pursuit to really look for truth. Um, truth, and you found truth with a capital T, and not only truth intellectually, but you found truth in the person of Jesus um, as not only a compelling figure for all of history, but also for your life. And that's a really beautiful thing. It's obvious your passion is obvious. And I do hope that those who are listening will take a closer look at her story and the way she methodically courses through all these difficult questions uh, through her book. And I, I do hope that, that you'll take a look. And I, again, will, the name of it is a skeptic's investigation into Jesus. A skeptic's investigation into Jesus, and we will we will link put a link on our episode notes for anyone who's looking for that. Thank you again, Julie. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you for te- telling your story. Thank you, Jana, and to anyone who listens. <laughs> Thank you. Bless you. Thanks for tuning in to the Side B podcast to hear Julie's story. You can find out more about her book, A Skeptic's Investigation into Jesus, by looking at the episode notes. For questions and feedback about this episode, you can reach me by email at the Podcast at cslewisinstitute.org. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share this podcast with your friends and social network. In the meantime, I'll be looking forward to seeing you next time where we'll be seeing how someone else flips the record of their life.